The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor by Spotify. That's anchor.fm. Hi folks, this is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. I'm here to tell you tonight about Anchor. Anchor is one of the best podcast distribution apps out there. Uh, They offer various ways to create, distribute, and monetize your podcast all for free, and they have some of the best built-in uploading, recording, and editing tools available in the industry. From start to finish, they can help you to set up your podcast. So if you are interested in starting a podcast, check out anchor.fm. Or if you are already a podcaster and you're looking for distribution solutions for your podcast, check out anchor.fm. Come with me.
to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to discuss the MIC, the Music Industrial Complex. We're going to look tonight into a book by one Mr. Dave McGowan, and I hope to do him some justice here tonight. I've never had the honor or privilege of meeting Dave, but uh, from what I understand, he was way ahead of his time and looking at uh, many of these subjects through the lens that he did so. So tonight we're going to be reading from Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, Laurel Canyon, Covert Ops, and the Dark Heart of the Hippie Dream. And we're going to see how this whole counterculture movement was built through the music scene back in this area in this time frame in the 1960s. And we'll see how this all came to a head here and the many things that have come about from it. And we'll see all the connections within officialdom in the military-industrial complex and the political sphere of things that were involved with this or related to this whole counterculture movement in some way, shape, or form. So we're going to read in this book here tonight. And we're going to garner some information that we can from it. And I, of course, will pause periodically to give my thoughts on these many things here. And Dave did some great work laying this down for those of us who were to come later. I always tell people I have the privilege of standing on the shoulders of giants in doing this kind of work. So that being the case, Dave was well ahead of his time when he put this out. And he was one of the few that really looked very deeply into this topic. Now, there have since been some others who've done some great work, including my friend Mark Devlin, who's looked at this stuff in depth as well and taken it to another level. And it's because of the foundational work of guys like Dave McGowan here that he was able to do that. So, that being the case, let's read and see what it is that he discovered about this music scene and the whole scene that happened at Laurel Canyon back in the 1960s. Village of the Damned, by way of introduction. There's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. Uh, as echoed by Buffalo Springfield. Join me now, if you have the time, as we take a stroll down memory lane to a time nearly five decades ago. A time when America last had uniformed ground troops fighting a sustained and bloody battle to impose some deadly Orwellian democracy on a sovereign nation. It is the first week of August 1964, and U.S. warships under the command of U.S. Navy Admiral George Stephen Morrison have allegedly come under attack while patrolling Vietnam's Tonkin Gulf. This event, subsequently dubbed the Tonkin Gulf incident will result in the immediate passing by the U.S. Congress of the obviously pre-drafted Tonkin Gulf Resolution, which will, in turn, quickly lead to America's deep immersion into the bloody Vietnam quagmire. Before it is over, well over 50,000 American bodies, along with literally millions of Southeast Asian bodies, will litter the battlefields of Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. 
For the record, the Tonkin Gulf incident appears to differ somewhat from other alleged provocations that have driven this country to war. This was not, as we have seen so many times before, a false flag operation, which is to say an operation that involves Uncle Sam attacking himself and then pointing an accusatory finger at someone else. It was also not, as we have also seen on more than one occasion, an attack that was quite deliberately provoked. No, what the Tonkin Gulf incident actually was, as it turns out, is an attack that never took place at all. I'm going to pause for a second here, folks. This is absolutely indisputable historical fact now. This has been admitted by the United States military. The Tonkin Gulf incident never happened. Never happened. So our reasoning for getting involved in Vietnam was totally made up out of whole cloth. The whole thing was fabricated in order to push an agenda. And he was pointing that out here. So let's continue reading. The entire incident, as has been all but officially acknowledged, was spun from whole cloth. It is quite possible, however, that the intent was to provoke a defensive response, which could have then been cast as an unprovoked attack on U.S. ships. The ships in question were on an intelligence mission and were operating in a decidedly provocative manner. It is quite possible that when Vietnamese forces failed to respond as anticipated, Uncle Sam decided to just pretend as though they had. Nevertheless, by early February 1965, the U.S. will, without a declaration of war, and with no valid reason to wage one, begin indiscriminately bombing North Vietnam. By March of that same year, the infamous Operation Rolling Thunder will commence. Over the course of the next three and a half years, millions of tons of bombs, missiles, rockets, incendiary devices, and chemical warfare agents will be dumped on the people of Vietnam in what can only be described as one of the worst crimes against humanity ever perpetuated on this planet. Also, in March of 1965, the first uniformed U.S. soldier officially sets foot on Vietnamese soil. Although special forces units masquerading as advisors and trainers have been there for at least four years and likely much longer. By April of 1965, fully 25,000 uniformed American kids, most still teenagers barely out of high school, are slogging through the rice paddies of Vietnam. By the end of the year, U.S. troops strength will have surged to 200,000. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the world in those early months of 1965, a new scene is just beginning to take shape in the city of Los Angeles. In a geographically and socially isolated community known as Laurel Canyon, a heavily wooded, rustic, serene, yet vaguely ominous slice of L.A. nestled in the hills that separate the Los Angeles basin from the San Fernando Valley. Musicians, singers, and songwriters suddenly begin to gather, as though summoned there by some unseen Pied Piper. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. By some unseen Pied Piper. Some force here. Uh, the Pied Piper. And this, this equates back to the archetype of Pan, as I've discussed before in my books and on my shows here several times. The Pan archetype in full swing, right here with the Pied Piper. 
So we see that synchromystic connection already in place here. And I'm sure there's probably some other mystic ties that we'll come across as we, we get there when looking at this. Perhaps McGowan didn't look at things in this way, but I certainly do recognize the tells of the synchromystic metadata in play here. And the way he described it, maybe it was not intentional that he realized there was a connection to the occult with it. Probably not. But I certainly picked up on that. That his choice of words was not by accident, I'm sure. So, that being the case, perhaps he sensed something about this whole thing and couldn't quite put his finger on it and recognized the archetype on a subliminal level and therefore just wrote it in here in this way. So that being the case, I find it interesting that there's all these crossovers in some of these things. But let's continue on, not to get too hung up on side trails here. Within months, the hippie flower child movement is begotten there, along with the new style of music that will provide the soundtrack for the tumultuous second half of the 1960s. Beginning in the mid-1960s and carrying through the decade of the 1970s, an uncanny number of rock music superstars will emerge from Laurel Canyon. The first to drop an album is The Birds, whose biggest star will prove to be David Crosby. Going to pause for a second here, folks. If I'm not mistaken, I think David Crosby just recently passed away within the past couple of days here. Uh, so that's just a little bit of an aside there. But he was one of the first major super rock stars to come into the mainstream here. Let's continue on. The band's debut effort, Mr. Tambourine Man, is released on the summer solstice of 1965. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. On the summer solstice. Not by accident again. Always with this stuff, you find these occult attachments. The summer sol solstice. This is recognized as being one of the most energetic days in the occult circle of things. So this is something that's leveraged upon. You'll notice release dates are often timed to phases of the moon and or, you know, different important activities within the calendar or different timing within the calendar. The solstices, the equinoxes, all of these kind of things. So the solstice, the summer solstice of 1965, that's when they released Mr. Tambourine Man. It will quickly be followed by releases from the John Phillips-led Mamas and the Papas, if you can believe your eyes and ears, in January of 1966, Love with Arthur Lee, Love, May 1966, Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, Freak Out, June 1966, Buffalo Springfield, featuring Stephen Stills and Neil Young, Buffalo Springfield, October 1966, and The Doors, the Doors, January 1967. One of the earliest on the Laurel Canyon Sunset Strip scene is Jim Morrison, the enigmatic leader of The Doors. Jim will quickly become one of the most iconic, controversial, critically acclaimed, and influential figures to take up residence in Laurel Canyon. Curiously enough, though, the self-proclaimed Lizard King has another claim to fame as well, albeit one that none of his numerous chroniclers will feel is of much relevance to his career and possible untimely death. 
He is the son, as it happens, of the aforementioned Admiral George Stephen Morrison. And so it is that even while the father is actively conspiring to fabricate an incident that will be used to massively accelerate an illegal war, the son is positioning himself to become an icon of the hippie, anti-war crowd. Nothing unusual about that, I suppose. It is, you know, a small world and all. And it is not as if Jim Morrison's story is in any way unique. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So we have this whole dichotomy here. This is the way in which the occultists of this world operate, these dark occultists who run things. They operate in the guise of paradoxes, polarities, opposites, trying to play to the middle of two opposites. So they have Morrison's father, the Admiral, starting an illegal war. And then they have his son, another interesting kind of connotation here, the father-son dichotomy and dynamic going on. His son being a major figure in this anti-war movement. The warmonger and the anti-war son. A paradox for sure, right? This is one of the ways in which the occultists like to operate when they do stuff. So you could see already there's elements relating to this that tie back to occult principles, if you just know what to look for. And we see that right here. And I'm sure we'll get a little bit deeper into that as we get further through the reading here. But let's continue on. During the early years of its heyday, Laurel Canyon's father figure is the rather eccentric personality known as Frank Zappa. Though he and his various Mothers of Invention lineups will never attain the commercial success of the band headed by the Admiral's son, Frank will be a hugely influential figure among his contemporaries. Ensconced in a road dubbed the Log Cabin, which sat right in the heart of Laurel Canyon at the crossroads of Laurel Canyon Boulevard and Lookout Mountain Avenue, Zappa will play host to virtually every musician who passes through the canyon in the mid to late 1960s. He will also discover and sign numerous acts to his various Laurel Canyon-based record labels. Many of these acts will be rather bizarre and somewhat obscure characters, think Captain Beefheart and Larry Wildman Fisher, but some of them, such as psychedelic rocker come shock rocker Alice Cooper, will go on to superstardom. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. Yes, Alice Cooper passed through this area as well at the right time. Was it a matter of being right place, right time? I think it was for some of these people to get their major thrust into superstardom here. Zappa, along with certain members of his sizable entourage, the log cabin was run as an early commune with numerous hangers on occupying various rooms in the main house and the guest house, as well as the peculiar caves and tunnels lacing the grounds of the home. Far from the quaint homestead that name, the name seems to imply, the log cabin was a cavernous five-level home that featured a 2,000-plus square foot living room with three massive chandeliers and an enormous floor-to-ceiling stone fireplace. This will also be instrumental in introducing the look and attitude that will define the hippie counterculture, although the Zappa crew prefers the label Freak. Nevertheless, Zappa will never really make a secret of the fact that he has nothing but contempt for the hippie culture that he will help create and with, with which he will surround himself. 
Given that Zappa is, by various accounts, a pro-military, rigidly authoritarian control freak, it is perhaps unsurprising that he will not feel a kinship with the youth movement that we will help nur- that he will help to nurture. And it is probably safe to say that Frank's dad also would have had little regard for the youth culture of the 1960s, given that Francis Zappa was, in case you were wondering, a chemical warfare specialist assigned to, where else, the Edgewood Arsenal near Baltimore, Maryland. Edgewood is, of course, the longtime home of America's chemical warfare program, as well as a facility frequently cited as being deeply enmeshed in MK Ultra operations. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So, MK Ultra. Yes, the mind control programs had connections directly to Laurel Canyon through one Frank Zappa. His father, Francis Zappa, worked at the military base there. The Edgewood Arsenal on chemical warfare operations. And it's also been a known commodity that that same base was a hub for MK Ultra activities. So, with that being said, there's a connection. A possible connection. I would say more than possible. I would say a probable connection between the two. Especially considering Frank Zappa's attitude towards this hippie counterculture that he was helping to shape. You see, was he a handler? Who could say? Curiously enough, Frank Zappa literally grew up at the Edgewood Arsenal, having lived the first seven years of his life in military housing on the grounds of the facility. The family later moved to Lancaster, California, near Edwards Air Force Base, where Francis Zappa continued to busy himself doing classified work for the military-industrial complex. His son, meanwhile, prepped himself to become an icon of the peace and love crowd. Again, nothing unusual about that, I suppose. Zappa's manager is a shadowy character by the name of Herb Cohen, who had come out to L.A. from the Bronx with his brother Mutt just before the music and club scene began heating up. Cohen, a former U.S. Marine, had spent a few years traveling the world before his arrival on the Laurel Canyon scene. Those travels, curiously, had taken him to the Congo in 1961, at the very time that leftist Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba was being tortured and killed by our very own CIA. Not to worry, though. According to one of Zappa's biographers, Cohen wasn't in the Congo on some kind of nefarious intelligence mission. No, he was there, on the contrary, to supply arms to Lumumba, in defiance of the CIA. Because, you know, that is the kind of thing that globetrotting ex-Marines did in those days, as we'll see soon enough when we take a look at another Laurel Canyon luminary. Making up the other half of Laurel Canyon's first family is Frank's wife, Gail Zappa, formerly known as Adelaide Slotman. Gail hails from a long line of career naval officers, including her father, who spent his life working on classified nuclear weapons research for the U.S. Navy. Gail herself once worked as a secretary for the Office of Naval Research and Development. She also once told an interviewer that she had heard voices all her life. Many years before their nearly simultaneous arrival in Laurel Canyon, Gail had attended a naval kindergarten class with Mr. Mojo Risen himself, Jim Morrison. It is claimed that as children, Gail once hit Jim over the head with a hammer. 
The very same Jim Morrison had later attended the same Alexandria, Virginia High School as two other future Laurel Canyon luminaries, John Phillips and Cass Elliott. Papa John Phillips, more than probably any of the other illustrious residents of Laurel Canyon, will play a major role in spreading the emerging youth counterculture across America. His contribution will be twofold. First, he will co-organize the famed Monterey Pop Festival, which, through unprecedented media exposure, will give mainstream America its first real look at the music and fashions of the nascent hippie movement. Second, Phillips will pen an insipid song known as San Francisco, Be Sure to Wear Your Flowers in Your Hair, which will quickly rise to the top of the charts. Along with the Monterey Pop Festival, the song will be instrumental in luring the disenfranchised, a preponderance of whom will be underage runaways, to San Francisco to create the Haight-Ashbury phenomenon and the famed 1967 Summer of Love. Before arriving in Laurel Canyon and opening doors of his home to the soon-to-be-famous, the already-famous, and the infamous, such as Charlie Manson, whose family also spent time at the log cabin and at the Laurel Canyon home of Mama Cass Elliot, who, which, in case you didn't know, sat right across the road from the Laurel Canyon home of Abigail Folger and Wojtek Frykowski, but let's not get ahead of ourselves here. John Edmund Andrew Phillips was, shockingly enough, yet another child of the military-industrial complex. The son of U.S. Marine Corps Captain Claude Andrew Phillips, and a mother who claimed to have psychic and telekinetic powers, John attended a series of elite military prep schools in the Washington, D.C. area, culminating in an appointment to the prestigious U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis. After leaving Annapolis, John married Susie Adams, a direct descendant of founding father John Adams. Susie's father, James Adams Jr., had been involved in what Susie described as, quote, cloak and dagger stuff with the Air Force in Vienna, end quote, or what others like to call covert intelligence operations. Susie herself would later find employment at the Pentagon alongside John Phillips' older sister, Rosie, who dutifully reported to work at the complex for nearly 30 years. John's mother, Dean Phillips, also worked for most of her life for the federal government in some unspecified capacity. And John's older brother, Tommy, was a battle-scarred former U.S. Marine who found work on the Alexandria Police Force as a cop albeit one with a disciplinary record for exhibiting a violent streak when dealing with people of color. John Phillips, of course, though surrounded throughout his life by military intelligence personnel, did not involve himself in such matters, or so we are to believe. Before succeeding in his musical career, however, John did seem to find himself, quite innocently of course, in some rather unusual places. One such place was Havana, Cuba, where Phillips arrived at the very height of the Cuban Revolution. For the record, Phillips has claimed that he went to Havana as nothing more than a concerned private citizen with the intention of, you're going to love this one, fighting for Castro. <laughs> because, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of folks in those days traveled abroad to thwart CIA operations before taking up residence in Laurel Canyon and joining the hippie generation. During the two weeks or so that the Cuban Missile Crisis played out, a few years after Castro took power, Phillips found himself cooling his heels in Jacksonville, Florida, along the Mayport Naval Station. 
Anyway, let's move on to yet another of Laurel Canyon's earliest and brightest stars, Mr. Stephen Stills. Stills will have the distinction of being a founding member of two of Laurel Canyon's most acclaimed and beloved bands, Buffalo Springfield and, needless to say, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. In addition, Stills will pen perhaps the first, and certainly one of the most enduring anthems of the 60s generation, for what it's worth, the opening lines of which appear at the top of this chapter. Stills' follow-up single will be entitled Bluebird, which, coincidentally or not, happens to be the original codename assigned to the CIA's MK Ultra program. I'm gonna pause for a moment here, folks. Bluebird, Artichoke, MK Ultra, Monarch. All of these are distinctions of mind control programming. Mind control programming. That's what they are. These were programs put in place by the intelligence community, the military-industrial complex. Kind of strange that his song just happened to be named Bluebird. Isn't it? You have to wonder about some of this stuff. How did these guys wind up all in the same place, same time? All have the same type of background with the military-industrial complex. And, ta-da, you have the birth of a counterculture movement. An anti-war movement, the antithesis of what the synthesis should be. You see, it's all a Hegelian trick. All right, it's, it's the whole power dynamic at play. Thesis plus antithesis equals synthesis. So you have the war this escalation in Vietnam. Then you have this counterculture movement. So you have thesis, the, the conflict in Vietnam. Antithesis, the new counterculture movement, to create a synthesis. And what is the synthesis? Well, I think we're seeing the ramifications of it over the course of the past three generations here. Two or three generations, you see. Now we're beginning to see the fruition of the things that began in the 1960s counterculture. We see the breakdown of society in many ways. The moral fabric of society becomes to degenerate some. So let's continue reading, though. Before his arrival in Laurel Canyon, Stephen Stills was the product of yet another career military family. Raised partly in Texas, young Stephen spent large swaths of his childhood in El Salvador, Costa Rica, the Panama Canal Zone, and various other parts of Central America, alongside his father, who was, we can be fairly certain, helping to spread democracy to the unwashed masses in that endearingly American way. As with the rest of our cast of characters, Stills was educated primarily at schools on military bases and at elite military academies. Among his contemporaries in Laurel Canyon, he was widely viewed as having an abrasive authoritarian personality. Nothing unusual about any of that, of course, as we have seen already. There is, however, an even more curious aspect to the Stephen Stills story. Stephen will later tell anyone who will sit and listen that he had served time for Uncle Sam in the jungles of Vietnam. These tales will be universally dismissed by chroniclers of the era as nothing more than drug-induced delusions. Such a thing couldn't possibly be true, it will be claimed, since Stills arrived on the Laurel Canyon scene at the very time that the first uniformed troops began shipping out, and he remained in the public eye thereafter. 
And it will, of course, be quite true that Stephen Stills could not have served with uniformed ground troops in Vietnam, but what will be ignored is the undeniable fact that the U.S. had thousands of advisors, which is to say CIA Special Forces operatives, active in the country for a good many years before the arrival of the first official ground troops. What will also be ignored is that, given his background, his age, and the timeline of events, Stephen Stills not only could indeed have seen action in Vietnam, he would seem to have been a prime candidate for such an assignment, after which, of course, he could rather quickly become, stop me if you've heard this one before, an icon of the peace generation. Another of those icons, and one of Laurel Canyon's most flamboyant residents, is a young man by the name of David Crosby, founding member of the seminal Laurel Canyon band The Birds, as well as, of course, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Crosby is, not surprisingly, the son of an Annapolis graduate and World War II military intelligence officer, Major Floyd Delafield Crosby. Like others in the story, Floyd Crosby spent much of his post-service time traveling the world. Those travels landed him in places like Haiti, where he paid a visit in 1927 when the country just happened to be, coincidentally of course, under military occupation by the U.S. Marines. One of the Marines doing that occupying was a guy that we met earlier by the name of Captain Claude Andrew Phillips. But David Crosby is much more than just the son of Major Floyd Delafield Crosby. David Van Cortland Crosby, as it turns out, is a scion of the closely intertwined Van Cortland, Von Schuyler, and Von Rennesler families. And while you're probably thinking the Von Who families, I can assure you that if you plug those names in over at Wikipedia, you can spend a pretty fair amount of time reading up on the power wielded by this clan for the last, oh, two and a quarter centuries or so. Suffice it to say, the Crosby family tree includes a truly dizzying array of U.S. senators and congressmen, state senators and assemblymen, governors, mayors, judges, Supreme Court justices, revolutionary and civil war generals, signers of the Declaration of Independence, and members of the Continental Congress. It also includes, I should hasten to add, for those of you with a taste for such things, more than a few high-ranking Masons. Stephen Van Rensselaer III, for example, reportedly served as Grand Master of Masons for New York. And if all that isn't impressive enough, according to the New England Genealogical Society, David Van Cortland Crosby is also a direct descendant of founding fathers and Federalist paper authors Alexander Hamilton and John Jay going to pause for a second here, folks. Once again, we see always these family bloodlines in these circles of power and intrigue in shaping society in many ways. Always, always, always. Oftentimes with, you know, attachments to the military-industrial complex, to the intelligence community, as well as all of these ties back to Famous people of yesteryear as well. Those people who controlled things way back when. Always the same families. Isn't that odd? You gotta wonder about this stuff, don't you? Let's read on. 
If there is, as many believe, a network of elite families that has shaped national and world events for a very long time, then it is probably safe to say that David Crosby is a bloodline member of that clan, which may explain, come to think of it, why his semen seems to be in such demand in certain circles, because... If we're being honest here, it certainly can't be due to his looks or talent. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. And as I had mentioned, I do believe David Crosby just passed away within the past several days. And I do remember some verification of this as I think it was Melissa Etheridge actually came forward and had said something because she was one of the people who was the receiver of some of his semen for artificial insemination so she could have a child and she viewed him as a close friend. So certainly what McGowan was talking about here is a, is a thing for sure, uh, which seems strange enough, right? And maybe it is because of this royalty, this royal family bloodline, this heritage, that that's why some folks were <laughs> very keen on being involved with something like that. But let's continue on. If America had royalty, then David Crosby would probably be a duke or a prince or something similar. But other than that, he is just a normal run-of-the-mill kind of guy who just happened to shine as one of Laurel Canyon's brightest stars. And who, I guess I should add has a real fondness for guns, especially handguns, which he has maintained a sizable collection of for his entire life. According to those closest to him, it is a rare occasion when Mr. Crosby is not packing heat. John Phillips also owned and sometimes carried handguns. And according to Crosby himself, he has, on at least one occasion, discharged a firearm in anger at another human being, all of which made him, of course, an obvious choice for the flower children to rally around. Another shining star on the Laurel Canyon scene, just a few years later, will be singer-songwriter Jackson Brown, who is, are you getting bored with this as I am, the product of a career military family. What a shocker, right? Brown's father was assigned to post-war reconstruction work in Germany, which very likely means that he was in the employ of the OSS, the precursor of the CIA. As readers of my earlier work, Understanding the F-Word, may recall, U.S. involvement in post-war reconstruction in Germany largely consisted of maintaining as much of the Nazi infrastructure as possible while shielding war criminals from capture and prosecution. Against that backdrop, Jackson Brown was born in a military hospital in Heidelberg, Germany. Some two decades later, he emerged as, oh, never mind. <laughs> Let's talk instead about three other Laurel Canyon vocalists who will rise to dizzying heights of fame and fortune. Jerry Beckley, Dan Peake, and Dewey Bunnell. Individually, these three names are probably unknown to virtually all readers, but collectively, as the band America... The three will score huge hits in the early 70s with such songs as Ventura Highway, A Horse With No Name, and The Wizard of Oz themed The Tin Man. I guess I probably don't need to add here that all three of these lads were products of the military intelligence community. 
Beckley's dad was the commander of the now-defunct West Ruslip U.S. Air Force Base near London, England, a facility deeply immersed in intelligence operations. Bunnell's and Peake's fathers were career Air Force officers serving under Beckley's dad at West Ruslip, which is where the three boys first met. We could also, I suppose, discuss Mike Nesmith of The Monkees and Corey Wells of Three Dog Night, two more hugely successful Laurel Canyon bands, who both arrived in L.A. not long after serving time with the U.S. Air Force. Nesmith also inherited a family fortune estimated at $25 million. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. The Monkees, they were hugely influential in not only musical circles, they had their own television show. You remember that? I don't know if most of you out there are as old as I am, or older, but I remember watching the Monkees TV show. And it was in, you know, in syndication when I was watching it, like after the fact, uh, back in the 1980s, like well after, you know, the, the time that they had done the shows, but they were still even playing in syndication like a decade or two after they initially aired these shows. So this was a huge programming opportunity using these shows, and I really don't remember much of the uh, the stories in the shows or anything like that. I, none of them really stand out, but they always had the music intertwined with it. And it's amazing they had so much success as they had. And they wound up even on the TV with a regular syndicated TV show, television show. So, interesting stuff, right? How does one get there? And, you know, Nesmith apparently had inherited a fortune. So the guy didn't have any worries about money, so why was he up there doing that stuff? Well, who knows? I mean, it's hard to say. But I just find all these connections very interesting. Let's continue reading, though. Graham Parsons, who will briefly replace David Crosby in The Birds before fronting the Flying Burrito Brothers, was the son of Major Cecil Ingram Coondog Connor II, a decorated military officer and bomber pilot who reportedly flew over 50 combat missions. Parsons was also an heir on his mother's side to the formidable Snively family fortune, Said to be the wealthiest family in the exclusive enclave of Winter Haven, Florida, the Snively family was the proud owner of Snively Groves, Incorporated, which reportedly owned as much as one-third of all the citrus groves in the state of Florida. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. That is a huge operation and amount of wealth, if you really think about it, and get to understand what's all involved there. So, once again, you have a well-connected family here. One that doesn't have, perhaps, a need for financial incentive or anything of the sort. But yet they chose to go live like dirty hippies. <laughs> right? We're supposed to believe this. You, you know, they had all this wealth. And they just wanted to be part of this counter-movement, this anti-war movement or something like that. Go against everything that's been generationally bred into their families. Go against everything that their their families worked for. So it doesn't make sense. There's a, a dichotomy of thought going on here for sure. Once again, it's the whole idea of the paradox. The polarity. Working the two opposite polarity principles against each other towards a middle goal. The synthesis, if you will. 
but let's continue reading here. And so it goes as one scrolls through the roster of Laurel Canyon superstars. What one finds, far more often than not, are the sons and daughters of the military in intelligence complex and the sons and daughters of extreme wealth and privilege. Oftentimes you'll find both rolled into one convenient package. Every once in a while, you will also stumble across a former child actor, like Brandon DeWilde or Monkey Mickey Dolenz or eccentric prodigy Van Dyke Parks. You might also encounter some formal, some former mental patients, such as James Taylor, who spent time in two different mental institutions in Massachusetts before hitting the Laurel Canyon scene, or Larry Wildman Fisher, who was institutionalized repeatedly during his teen years, once for attacking his mother with a knife, an act that was gleefully mocked by Zappa on the cover of Fisher's first album. Finally... You might find the offspring of an organized crime figure, like Warren Zevon, the son of William Stumpy Zevon, a lieutenant for infamous L.A. crime lord Mickey Cohen. All these folks gathered nearly simultaneously around, along the narrow winding roads of Laurel Canyon. They came from across the country, although the Washington, D.C. area was noticeably overly represented, as well as from Canada and England, and in at least one case, all the way from Nazi Germany. They came even though, at the time, there was no music industry in Los Angeles. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. We take for granted today that most of the music industry and the film industry and everything is based in Los Angeles, based in Southern California. We take that for granted. That wasn't always the case, and that wasn't always true. And still today, it's not necessarily true. But this is where... The minds of the masses are socially engineered to believe that these things operate from. This is the main area where they come from. Now, we see here, this was the time when all of this took hold in Los Angeles. And it's kind of stayed there ever since. And you have, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, locating the Hollywood scene there and everything. They we're trying to maybe centralize all their social agenda programming to one central area. Now, it seems to me that over the course of time, and these are just my observations outside of Dave's work here, it seems to me over the course of time they tried to maybe send people off the trail a little bit by re-centralizing or, or moving different operations to different areas. Like for a time in the early 1990s, the music scene kind of seemed centered in Seattle. They moved it, you see. And they've done this from time to time, periodically. So th this is kind of the thing. So it's all about what kind of a social agenda is in the works at that time. What kind of a, a cultural representation are they trying to make? So this, I think, plays a part in it as well. And music is always something that's hugely important. I mean... Think about this. It's People will refer to a lot of this music as the soundtrack of our lives, right? This is the soundtrack of my life. If you think back and, like, some of the classic songs and stuff from these bands, I, I, everybody knows a lot of these songs. And that's, like, you know, one of the big things. It, it's a hugely important tool for those dark occultists who run things and those social engineers of this world to utilize to steer the minds of the masses. So they're not going to miss the opportunity to do that. So here's the interesting thing here now. Now keep this in mind. I'm going to read that last sentence again and we'll continue from there. 
They came even though at the time there was no music industry in Los Angeles. They came even though at the time there was no live music scene to speak of. They came even though, in retrospect, there was no discernible reason for them to do so. It would, of course, make sense these days for an inspiring musician to venture out to Los Angeles, but in those days, the centers of the music universe were Nashville, Memphis, and New York. It wasn't the industry that drew the Laurel Canyon crowd, you see, but rather the Laurel Canyon crowd that transformed Los Angeles into the epicenter of the music industry. To what then do we attribute this unprecedented gathering of future musical superstars in the hills above Los Angeles? What was it that inspired them all to head out west? Perhaps Neil Young said it best when he told an interviewer that he couldn't really say why he headed out to L.A. circa 1966. He and others, quote, were just going like lemmings, end quote. So you have to wonder, don't you, about this. And like I said, just my own personal observations, I think something similar happened in the early 1990s in Seattle. Because you had the same kind of things happening there. You had all of these new, trendy musical acts centered around Seattle, right? It happened in Seattle in the 1990s as well. You had all of these major bands like Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, um, the Alice in Chains, Queensryche. A whole new sound for an era. They all gathered in Seattle. And from that you had also Nirvana, which had a major influence in American culture, transformed rather quickly. I, I remember this happening. I was in high school at the time. When you watched the music scene change abruptly from uh, the, the kind of 1980s hair metal kind of thing that was going on, um, it switched abruptly to this new grunge scene which very much Nirvana was at the head of, and one Mr. Dave Grohl, who has now since been, you know, inculcated in, in many social engineering tropes, as it were. A hugely talented individual, don't get me wrong, but uh, he has, I believe, military intelligence background, too, in his family. All the same tells that turn up all the time with this, as McGowan pointed out here. So that being the case, I mean, we see a lot of interesting crossover there so much of what uh, mcgowan was laying down here about the 60s counterculture you could apply that to other times and situations like if you look back to the early 1990s when we had this transformational change in the entertainment spheres in the spheres of music what music actually took hold at the time became popular and the ways in which the hollywood entertainment had changed at that point too it was it was hugely different from where it was in the past so it was kind of a groundbreaking thing once again it seems like it was the epicenter for something new and it's nothing really new because there's nothing new under the sun it's just some type of a, an archetype or a, a leveraging of the cycles of time was pulled off and manipulated in some way which vastly changed the public perception of things so that's what was being done. So this is the the actual the, the textbook for seeing how operationally this, this gets done. You have these military-industrial complex operatives, these intelligence operatives who have their families that are maybe tied in some way to these family bloodline groups that uh, 
want to stay in the, the circles of of power or the circles of influence. And they position themselves accordingly, and these things tend to happen. Wherein you can make a new type of a cultural revolution, per se. You can transform society in many ways through the entertainment media. That's what was done here. And this is the textbook for how it's done when you look at McGowan's book here. So, let's continue on here. Power to the people. Call this a counterculture. And then he has a quote here from Sammy Davis Jr. And this one's an interesting one. <clears throat> Pay attention. Quote, Everyone there had at one time or another been into Satanism, or, like myself, had dabbled around the edges for sexual kicks. End quote. Sammy Davis Jr. referring to the victims at 10050 CLO Drive. We met a sampling of some of the most successful and influential rock megasaurs who emerged from Laurel Canyon during its glory days. But there were, alas, more than just musicians and singers and songwriters who had come together in the canyon. They were all destined to become the spokesmen and de facto leaders of a generation of disaffected youth. As Carl Gottlieb noted in David Crosby's co-written autobiography, the unprecedented mass appeal of the New York rock and roll gave the singers a voice in public affairs. That, of course, makes it all the more curious that these icons were, to an overwhelming degree, the sons and daughters of the military-industrial complex and the scions of families that have wielded vast wealth and power in this country for a very long time. It could, of course, be argued that there was nothing necessarily nefarious in the fact that so many of these icons of a past generation hailed from military intelligence families. Perhaps it could be suggested they had embarked on their chosen careers as a form of rebellion against the values of their parents, and that, I suppose, might be true in a couple of cases. But what are we to conclude from the fact that such an astonishing number of these folks, along with their girlfriends, wives, managers, etc., hail from a similar background? Are we to believe that the only kids from that era who had musical talent were the sons and daughters of Navy admirals, chemical warfare engineers, and Air Force intelligence officers? Or are they just the only ones who were signed to lucrative contracts and relentlessly promoted by their labels and the media? If these artists were rebelling against rather than subtly promoting the values of their parents, then why didn't they ever speak out against the people they were allegedly rebelling against? Why did Jim Morrison never denounce or even mention his father's key role in escalating one of America's bloodiest illegal wars? And why did Frank Zappa never pen a song exploring the horrors of chemical warfare, though he did pen a charming little ditty entitled Ritual Dance of the Child Killer? And which Mamas and the Papas songs was was it that laid waste to the values and actions of John Phillips' parents and in-laws? And in which interview exactly did David Crosby and Stephen Stills disown the family values that they were raised with? We will be taking a much closer look at these performers as well as at many of their contemporaries as we endeavor to determine how and why the youth counterculture of the 1960s was given birth. According to virtually all the accounts that I have read, this was essentially a spontaneous, organic response to the war in Southeast Asia and to the prevailing social conditions of the time. 
Conspiracy theorists, of course, have frequently opined that what began as a legitimate movement was at some point co-opted and undermined by intelligence operations such as COINTELPRO. Entire books, for example, have been written examining how presumably virtuous music musical artists were subjected to FBI harassment and or whacked by the CIA. Here we will, as you may have already ascertained, take a decidedly different approach. The question that we will be tackling is a more deeply troubling one. What if the musicians themselves and various other leaders and founders of the movement were every bit as much a part of the intelligence community as the people who were supposedly harassing them? What if, in other words, the entire youth culture of the 1960s was created not as a grassroots challenge to the status quo, but as a cynical exercise in discrediting and marginalizing the budding anti-war movement and creating a fake opposition that could be easily controlled and led astray? And what if the harassment these folks were subjected to was largely a stage-managed show designed to give the leaders of the counterculture such some much-needed street cred? What if, in reality, they were all pretty much all playing on the same team? Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. This is what your news media brings you every night, folks. This is describing what news media does. This is also what Hollywood does. This is their playbook. This is how they operate. They will give you this illusion of opposition. It's all a show, folks. That's how it all works. It's all a stage-managed show designed to give the leaders some much-needed street cred. It's to keep you distracted, divided, arguing over issues of no real importance. This is what they do in spades with everything, every aspect of media. It's designed to divide people along ideological lines. It's designed to keep people fighting. It's designed to really manipulate a portion of human, the human psyche that people don't think about much these days. It harkens back to the idea of tribalism. My side and your side. The teams, you see. It's why we have our favorite football teams. It's the same kind of concept. Our team won. My team won. You know, did you watch the game? Our, our team won. It's this whole tribalism mentality. The us versus them mentality. They take advantage of this by synthesizing artificial teams that aren't really at odds with one another that are working together but they have to do this to steer the human mind in ways that they want to steer it so they control both sides of the argument look at it this way both teams are playing for the same owner right and it doesn't matter which one wins because the owner wins in the end so look at it like that. And, you know, I, I could go on at length about how mainstream sports also rigged in this way. I think people are beginning to realize that. You think it was by accident that uh, the Chargers won the Super Bowl last year? You know, the, the yellow and blue, the colors of Ukraine, and then the Ukrainian war broke out just, you know, weeks later. Snoop Dogg up there in a blue and yellow outfit supporting 
this Ukrainian thing. The colors of Ukraine and the team wins. It's it's all contrived, folks. Like all of it. It's a stage show. It's all a stage show. And you can, you know, just tell people that till you're blue in the face and they can't see it if they don't want to see it. But this is true, and here it is. This is exactly how it works. You see? Military industrial complex sets up operations, things they want to do, and then they have people opposed to those operations come out in some kind of a counterculture type movement and they control both sides of the argument and they can steer people's opinions and behaviors whatever way they deem fit by controlling both sides and that's how they do things it's a classical hegelian dialectic thesis plus antithesis equals synthesis that's how they do it you take the one side of the polarity you add the other side of the polarity to that, and you can create something in the middle that you want. A system of control. This is how it all works. It's basic mind control. It's mind control 101, you see. And it takes advantage of this human need to belong to a group. This whole tribalism mentality. Something that's kind of primeval in our minds, but it's definitely there. It invokes on archetypal ways of thinking, you see. And it invokes this whole hierarchy of needs, as talked about by Maslow. Uh, so, that being the case, they use these things to manipulate our behavior in many ways, and our opinions, largely. And oftentimes, we don't even realize we're being manipulated. And that's the, the whole aspect of it that's so disturbing is because you realize when you begin to realize that many of your opinions have been formed by somebody else that you've probably never heard of or seen then you begin to wonder <laughs> how did this come about and when you look into the psychology of this and how this all works the mind manipulation and you can see that uh, it, it's really kind of a nefarious thing, really, uh, if, if you think about the way to manipulate the masses that's been done here. Uh, and, and that's the whole thing that this Laurel Canyon scene is all about. It's a transformative change in the society at large, in the public mindset, in the group psychology. That's what was done. So anyway... Let's go ahead and continue reading here. I don't want to get too hung up on my side trails because there's, there's still some ground I want to cover tonight before we sign off. I should probably mention here that contrary to popular opinion, the hippie flower child movement was not synonymous with the anti-war movement. As time passed, there was, to be sure, a fair amount of overlap between the two movements, and the mass media outlets, as is their wont, did their very best to portray the flower child generation, the flower power generation, as the torchbearers of the anti-war movement. After all, a ragtag band of unwashed, drug-fueled long hairs sporting flowers and peace symbols was far easier to marginalize than, say, a bunch of respected college professors and their concerned students. The reality, however, is that the anti-war movement was already well underway before the first aspiring hippie arrived in Laurel Canyon. The first Vietnam War teach-in was held on the campus of the University of Michigan in March of 1965. 
The first organized walk on Washington occurred just a few weeks later. Needless to say, there were no hippies in attendance at either event. That problem would soon be rectified. And the anti-war crowd, and those who were serious about ending the bloodshed in Vietnam anyway, would be none too appreciative. As Barry Miles has written in his coffee table book, Hippie, there were some hippies involved in anti-war protests, particularly after the police riot in Chicago in 1968, when so many people got injured, but on the whole, the movement activists looked on hippies with disdain. Peter Coyote, narrating the documentary Hippies on the History Channel, added that, quote, Some on the left even theorized that the hippies were the end result of a plot by the CIA to neutralize the anti-war movement, with LSD turning potential protesters into self-absorbed navel-gazers, end quote. An exasperated Abby Hoffman once described the scene as he remembered it thusly, quote, there were all these activists, you know, Berkeley radicals, White Panthers, all trying to stop the war and change things for the better. Then we got flooded with all these flower children who were into drugs and sex. Where the hell did the hippies come from? End quote. As it turns out, they came initially at least from a rather private, isolated, largely self-contained neighborhood in Los Angeles known as Laurel Canyon. In contrast to the other canyons slicing through the Hollywood Hills, Laurel Canyon has its own market, the semi-famous Laurel Canyon Country Store, its own deli and cleaners, its own elementary school, the Wonderland School. going to pause for a moment here, folks. Wonderland School. <coughs> in case you don't know, Alice in Wonderland is a, fam is a favorite programming trope for those in the MK Ultra projects, just so you know. But let's continue. Its own boutique shops and salons, and in more recent years, its own celebrity rehab facility named, as you may have guessed, the Wonderland Center. During its heyday, the canyon even had its own management company, Lookout Management, to handle the talent. At one time, it even had its own newspaper. One other thing that I should add here is that this has not been an easy line of research for me to conduct, primarily because I have been, for as long as I can remember, a huge fan of 1960s music and culture. Though I didn't come of age, so to speak, until the 1970s, I have always felt as though I was cheated by being denied the opportunity to experience firsthand the era that I was so obviously meant to inhabit. During my high school and college years, while my peers were mostly into faceless corporate rock, think Journey, Foreigner, Kansas, Boston, etc., and perhaps worse yet, the twin horrors of new wave and disco music, I was faithfully spinning my Hendrix, Joplin, and Doors albums, which I still have in the original vinyl versions, while my color organ, remember those, competed with my black light and strobe light. I grew my hair long until well past the age when it should have been sheared off. I may have even strung beads across the doorway to my room, but it is possible that I am confusing my life with that of Greg Brady, who, as we all remember, once converted his dad's home office into a groovy bachelor pad. Good old Greg Brady, right? Anyway, one of the most difficult aspects of this journey that I may have been on for the last 15 years or so has been watching so many of my former idols and mentors fall by the wayside as it became increasingly clear to me that people who I once thought were the good guys were, in reality, something entirely different. The first to fall, naturally enough, were the establishment figures, the politicians who I once quite foolishly looked up to as people who were fighting the good fight within the confines of the system to bring about real change. Though it now pains me to admit this, 
There was a time when I admired the likes of EGADs, George McGovern and Jimmy Carter, as well as California Poles, Tom Hayden and Jerry Brown. I even had high hopes, oh, so many years ago, for, am I really admitting this in print, Bill Clinton. <laughs> so going to pause for a moment here, folks. So McGowan had kind of left-leaning ideologies at some point, and I think we all have at some point in our youth. Honestly, when I was young and clueless, I thought Bill Clinton was an awesome president. <laughs> I thought he was cool. I mean, he went on Saturday Night Live and played the saxophone, and like, you know, this, this has never been done before, where you had a, a sitting president making the rounds on the nightly talk shows and stuff like that, things like, uh, you know, The Tonight Show and David Letterman and all of that stuff, and doing like Saturday Night Live and, and all of these different things. I thought it was, like, the greatest thing. We got this young, cool president in, this younger, cool president, and, you know, he was going to do some wonderful things. I was foolish at that point, too, right? So, at any rate, when as we get older, I think we begin to see, with a little bit more clarity, things going on. And I think the same was true for McGowan here. So, let's continue reading what he says here. Since I mentioned Jerry Governor Moonbeam Brown, by the way, I must now digress just a bit. As luck would have it, Jerry Brown was, curiously enough, a longtime resident of the little place called Laurel Canyon. As readers of my previous work program, To Kill, may recall, Brown lived on Wonderland Avenue, not too many doors down from 8763 Wonderland Avenue, the site of the infamous Four on the Floor Murders, regarded by grizzled L.A. homicide detectives as the most bloody and brutal multiple murder in the city's very bloody history. As it turns out, the most bloody mass murder in L.A.'s history took place in one of the city's most serene, pastoral, and exclusive neighborhoods, and strangely enough, the case usually cited as the runner-up for the title of the bloodiest crime scene, the murders of Stephen Parent, Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring, Wojtek Vrykowski, and Abigail Folger at... 10050 Cielo Drive in Benedict Canyon, just a couple miles to the west of Laurel Canyon, had deep ties to the Laurel Canyon scene as well. As previously mentioned, victims Folger and Frykowski lived in Laurel Canyon at 2774 Woodstock Road in a rented home right across the road from a favored gathering spot for local canyon royalty. Many of the regular visitors to Cass Elliott's home, including a number of shady drug dealers, were also regular visitors to the Folger Frykowski home. Frykowski's son, by the way, was stabbed to death on June 6, 1999, 30 years after his father met the same fate. Victim Jay Sebring's acclaimed hair salon sat right at the mouth of Laurel Canyon, just below the Sunset Strip, and it was Sebring, alas, who was credited with sculpting Jim Morrison's famous mane. One of the investors in his Sebring International business venture was none other than Mr. John Phillips. Sharon Tate was also well known in Laurel Canyon, where she was a frequent visitor to the homes of friends like John Phillips, Cass Elliott, and Abigail Folger. And when she wasn't in Laurel Canyon, many of the Canyon regulars, both famous and infamous, made themselves at home at her place on Cielo Drive. Canyonite Van Dyke Parks, for example, dropped by for a visit on the very day of the murders, and Denny Doherty, the other papa in the Mamas and the Papas, has claimed that he and John Phillips were invited to the CLO Drive home on the night of the murders, but as luck would have it, they never made it over. 
Similarly, Chuck Negron of Three Dog Night, a regular visitor to the Wonderland Death House, had set up a drug buy on the night of that mass murder, but he fell asleep and never made it over. Along with the victims, the alleged killers also lived in and or were very much a part of the Laurel Canyon scene. Bobby Cupid Bosalil, for example, lived in Laurel Canyon apartment during the early months of 1969. Charles Tex Watson, who allegedly led the death squad responsible for the carnage at Cielo Drive, lived for a time in a home on, guess where, Wonderland Avenue. During that time, curiously enough, Watson co-owned and worked in a wig shop in Beverly Hills, Crown Wig Creations LTD, that was located near the mouth of Benedict Canyon. Meanwhile, one of Jay Sebring's primary claims to fame was his expertise in crafting men's hair pieces, which he did in his shop near the mouth of Laurel Canyon. A typical day then, in the late 1960s, would find Watson crafting hair pieces for an upscale Hollywood clientele near Benedict Canyon, and then returning home to Laurel Canyon, while Sebring crafted hair pieces for an upscale Hollywood clientele near Laurel Canyon, and then returned home to Benedict Canyon. And then one crazy day, as we all know, one of them became a killer and the other his victim. But there's nothing odd about that, I suppose, so let's move on. Oh, wait a minute. We can't move on just yet, as I forgot to mention that Sebring's Benedict Canyon home at 9820 Easton Drive was a rather infamous Hollywood death house that had once belonged to Gene Harlow and Paul Byrne. The mismatched pair were wed on July 2nd, 1932, when Harlow, already a huge star of the silver screen, was just 21 years old. Just two months later, on September 5th, Byrne caught a bullet to the head in his wife's bedroom. He was found sprawled naked in a pool of his own blood, his corpse drenched with his wife's perfume. Upon discovering the body, Byrne's butler promptly contacted MGM's head of security, Whitey Hendry, who in turn contacted Louis B. Mayer and Irving Thalberg. All three men descended upon the Benedict Canyon home to... You know, tidy up a bit. A couple hours later, they decided to contact the LAPD. This scene would be repeated years later when Sebring's friends would rush to the very same home to clean up before officers investigating the Tate murders arrived. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. <coughs> very odd behavior indeed, wouldn't you say? Let's continue. Burns' death was, as is so often the case, written off as a suicide. His newlywed wife, strangely enough, was never called as a witness at the inquest. Byrne's other wife, which is to say his common-law wife, Dorothy Millette, reportedly boarded a Sacramento riverboat on September 6, 1932, the day after Paul's death. She was next seen floating belly up in the Sacramento River. Her death, as would be expected, was also ruled a suicide. Less than five years later, Harlow herself dropped dead at the ripe old age of 26. At the time, authorities opted not to divulge the cause of death, though it was later claimed that bad kidneys had done her in. During her brief stay on this planet, Harlow had cycled through three turbulent marriages and yet still found time to serve as godmother to Bugsy Siegel's daughter Millicent. Though Burns was the most famous body to be hauled out of the Easton Drive house in a coroner's bag, it certainly wasn't the only one. Another man had reportedly committed suicide there as well, in some unspecified fashion. Yet another unfortunate soul drowned in the home's pool, and a maid was once found swinging from the end of a rope. Her death, needless to say, was ruled a suicide as well. That's a lot of blood for one home to absorb, but the house's morbid history 
though a turnoff to many prospective residents was reportedly exactly what attracted Jay Sebring to the property. His murder would further darken the black cloud hanging over the home. As Laurel Canyon chronicler Michael Walker has noted, L.A.'s two most notorious mass murders, one in August of 1969 and the other in July of 1981, both involving five victims, though at Wonderland one of the five miraculously survived, provided rather morbid bookends for Laurel Canyon's glory years. Walker, though, like others who have chronicled that time and place, treats these brutal crimes as though they were unfortunate aberrations. The reality, however, is that the nine bodies recovered from Cielo Drive and Wonderland Avenue constitute just the tip of a very large and bloody iceberg. To partially illustrate that point, Diane Linkletter, daughter of famed entertainer Art Linkletter, legendary comedian Lenny Bruce, screen idol Sal Minio, starlet Inger Stevens, and silent film star Roman Navarro all have something in common. All were found dead in their homes, either in or at the mouth of Laurel Canyon, in the decade between 1966 and 1976. And all five were, in all likelihood, murdered in those Laurel Canyon homes. Only two of them are officially listed as murder victims, Minio, who was stabbed to death outside his home at 8563 Holloway Drive on February 12, 1976, and Navarro, who was killed near the country store, in a decidedly ritualistic fashion on the eve of Halloween 1968. Inger Stevens' death in her home at 8000 Woodrow Wilson Drive on April 30, 1970, while Purgis knocked on the occult calendar, was officially a suicide, though why she opted to propel herself through a decorative glass screen as part of that suicide remains a mystery. Perhaps she just wanted to leave behind a gruesome crime scene, and simple overdoses can be so, you know, bloodless and boring. Diane Linkletter, according to legend, sailed out the window of her Shoreham Towers apartment because, in her LSD-addled state, she thought she could fly. We know this because Art himself told us that it was so, and because the story was retold throughout the 1970s as a cautionary tale about the dangers of drugs. What we weren't told, however, is that Diane, born curiously enough on Halloween Day 1948, wasn't alone when she plunged six stories to her death on the morning of October 4, 1969. Au contraire. She was with a gent by the name of Edward Durston, who, in a completely unexpected turn of events, accompanied actress Carol Wayne to Mexico some 15 years later. Carol, alas, perhaps weighted down by her enormous breasts, managed to drown in barely a foot of water, while Mr. Durston promptly disappeared. As would be expected, he was never questioned by authorities about Wayne's curious death. After all, it is quite common for the same guy to be the sole witness to two separate accidental deaths. Art also neglected to mention that just weeks before Diane's curious death, another member of the Linkletter clan... Art's son-in-law, John Zwire, caught a bullet to the head in the backyard of his Hollywood Hills home. But that, of course, was an unconnected suicide. I'm not even going to discuss here the circumstances of Lenny Bruce's death for, from ac acute morphine poisoning on August 3, 1966, because, to be perfectly honest, I don't know too many people who don't already assume that Lenny was whacked. I'll just note here that his funeral was well attended by the Laurel Canyon rock icons, and control over his unreleased material fell into the hands of a guy by the name of Frank Zappa. 
And another unsavory character named Phil Spector, whose crack team of studio musicians dubbed the Wrecking Crew, were the actual musicians playing on many studio recordings by such Laurel Canyon bands as the Monkees, the Birds, the Beach Boys, and the Mamas, and the Papas. All right, folks. I think we're going to stop right there for tonight. So you see, Phil Spector. We've heard some things about Phil Spector through the years as well. It's likely he had ties to military intelligence. It's likely he had many of these same ties to the the wealthy family bloodlines of these elitists. He had his share of uh, different troubles through the years and his, his share of scandals through the years as well. We've seen this, we know this, and he was attached also to the Laurel Canyon crowd. And in fact, he was, and his musicians, actually provided a lot of the music and the recordings by such notables here as the Monkees, the Birds, the Beach Boys, and the Mamas and the Papas. That's an interesting turn of events as well, isn't it? So you have very few people that seem to be at the center of many different things that transformed society in the late 1960s, all attached to this one location, this one area, this Laurel Canyon area. It shifted the musical center from various places such as Memphis and Nashville and New York all the way to L.A., out to the West. It had this whole social revolution going on along with it. It was transformative. And in my estimation, it seems like it was all engineered. And that, I think, is the, the kind of kind of thing that uh, Dave McGowan was getting at with this book. He, he sees it that way, too. It was engineered in this way. For what purposes? Well, who could say for sure? But it seems like it was for the purpose of transforming society in many ways. And perhaps there's some very deep occult ties to this, as is hinted at here by McGowan in this book. And just knowing the things I've known through the years of research that I've done, I see many of the connections he's made. He's made them very subtly here. He's drawn attention to the ideas of perhaps these satanic holidays and stuff being associated with some of the deaths and, and the ritualistic way and some of these things happened and how all these coincidences just so happened to wrangle together around this one very same spot and how all of a sudden this became the epicenter of cultural revolution and the change in western society here a shifting a generational shifting of the culture and we've seen other iterations of that come and go through the years now as well. This, I think, was largely a prototype, in my estimation. They were trying to see what exactly could we do if we take something as iconic as music and use it to transform the mindset of the masses. And I think they successfully did that, because music has very deep psychological roots to it. 
it's archetypal it's primeval it's primitive it's it's something primal in mankind it's inherent in all of us we react to music music has a profound effect on the human conscience the human psyche the human mind the human soul the human spirit and a lot of it relates back to frequency vibration all of these ideas so they use this as a weaponized tool to effectuate change in the masses and i think that's largely the gist of mcgowan's book here and what his analysis of all of it is he made the connections he showed that all most if not all of these people that were involved in this counterculture revolution in the 1960s this musical scene had these connections to the military industrial complex in almost every single case and or ties to rich elite family bloodlines or both so that being the case i mean you see something deeper is going on here something that uh, statistically goes beyond just coincidence that's the thing i mean if you look at the statistical probability of this stuff what are the chances that it's all coincidence and yet people by and large will believe that explanation as the best explanation for just about everything it's a coincidence really if you could statistically sit and prove that something like that's not probable would you still consider it a coincidence do coincidences happen maybe they do who can say i'm not somebody that that uh, really puts a lot of faith or stock in the idea of coincidence because i've seen too much of the engineering going on in things there's different kinds of engineering that go on social engineering being key among those because you see it's these these people in positions of power in this world these dark occultists who run things that have a vested interest in controlling the behaviors of the public so they will use these social engineering tropes to do so and they use tools that people hardly recognize things like archetypes things that you're you don't consciously detect on the surface but your unconscious mind recognizes them and will react to them in a subconscious way which will affect you on a conscious level at some point and these people know that they're 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 fantastic at manipulating this concept and when i'm saying these people i mean these dark occultists who run things at the top of the power structure here they understand this aspect of the human psyche they could use symbols archetypes mythologies to affect your mind in ways that you don't even realize especially if you're not aware of the mythology or the associated story that goes along with it but your mind will still recognize it on an unconscious level because it's archetypal it's something primal inherent in people in the psyches of people in the mind of the masses young referred to this as the collective unconscious you see you will recognize this the scientists of the modern era call this genetic memory or epigenetic memory it's something that exists nobody is doubting its existence right it's an actual thing it's just the descriptor that they give to it if they want to try to give it a more scientific bent they'll call it genetic memory or epigenetic memory those in the occult would call this thing the akashic record or some kind of synchronicity 
a lot of these things. They're, they're archetypes, you see. And that's something that Jung tried to bridge the gap with, Carl Jung. Because he was an alchemist. Many people don't realize this. He was very adept in the alchemical arts. And a lot of the ideas he put forward are based upon much older ideas. So when he coined the term archetype and made it into the thing that it is today, that it's understood to be today in psychology and other aspects of things, this is a much older idea that was understood by the occultists and the alchemists. And this is something that he tried to give a scientific credence to, a modern spin on. And that's the whole point here. It doesn't matter what you call it. Everybody agrees it exists. It's just, what do you, what do you call it? And, and how do you frame it in reference? Do you use an occult principle? Do you use some kind of scientific nomenclature to name it? And that's what's been done. You see, it's a real thing. And it can affect the human mind. And it especially affects those who don't understand or recognize what's being conveyed in the image. That's the hugely important thing, the image. And I, I can't emphasize this enough, and I've been saying it for a long time now. Image. It's the important thing, the image that's presented. That would be the archetype, the image. You see, it's the symbol. It's the embodiment of the symbol they want to give you, which displays the archetype. It conveys the message of the archetype to your mind. And if you don't consciously recognize this symbol or image as the archetype that it is, it will still affect you, and it may affect you more profoundly on an unconscious or subconscious level. Because you're not aware of it in your conscious thinking. So this is something that's a hugely important thing. And this is what's been done, and I think they've taken music and figured out a way to weaponize it in that way too to where it hits on the archetypal level of the human mind and can affect you in certain ways music can certainly affect your mood i mean that's that's on that's a no-brainer right music can affect your mood it could affect your attitude it could affect the way you do things it can change your entire outlook in a just a, a couple of minutes so this was something that the social engineers of the day thought was hugely important to tinker with. And I think they've successfully done so. Especially when you get to the mid-20th century, going from the 1950s on forward, and the 1960s counterculture movement that was birthed out of it is a prime example of ways in which they've engineered society with the entertainment choices. Through the use of music, and also Hollywood to some degree or another, but music, I think, was the primary factor here in changing the minds of the people. Because in the 1960s, not everybody was into television the way they are today. Not everybody had a television or cared much for it. A larger audience could be reached through music, you see. And that, I think, is what was done. They had put the studies in with... Uh, Princeton Radio Group and, and other think tank groups who looked at these different things and figured out that they could affect people on a large scale with this stuff, with, with radio, with the technology of radio. And they went from there. And all the other forms of media stepped in line with it. So using music, I think, was one of their keys to getting the job done as far as transforming society in a real way. And they've succeeded to do so. 
And I think McGowan points that out in spades here in his book. So uh, this is a really interesting read. It's definitely uh, a classic that everybody should pick up and, and take a gander through, especially if you have interest in the way pop culture is shaped, you see. You'll have a new understanding of what's been done in the name of pop culture, especially if you're of that generational group or, you know, if you're around my age. <laughs> uh, full disclosure, I'm 47 years old. Uh, so if you're around my age or somewhat older, somewhat younger, many of these same types of music have influenced all of us. And we've seen some of these things unfold in our lifetimes. And we could look back now with hindsight and say, I recognize what was done there now. Whereas at the time, we didn't have a clue what was going on. But now we can. And I think it's important that this gets passed to the younger generation as well, so that they can use this as a, an example, as a lesson. Here it is. That's their playbook. This is how they operate. This is what they do. You see all these people gathering in the same place, same time. It's not a coincidence. Okay, It's not just a happy accident that they all just happen to be in the right place at the right time especially if it's transferring the entire genre, the culture, to this new place. It's transplanting this, the, the epicenter of culture to this new place. That doesn't just happen organically. It can, I mean, to a certain degree, but you could see what's been done and how this escalated people to superstardom, and it's just not a coincidence that they all had this tie back to the military intelligence complex and these royal family bloodlines that are so venerated by those in the elite circles. So that being the case, you could see what's been done here. And I think McGowan gives a perfect example. So I hope I did McGowan some justice here tonight, reading through his work and adding my commentary. But anyway, folks, I want to thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate each and every one of you. And we'll catch you next time. That's all I got for tonight. Have a good one. Catch you later. Come with me.